Let me tell you a story. Podcast number 126. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We apologize for the long gap between podcasts. Thanks to finishing the Prisoners of Hope trilogy and COVID-19 craziness, we got way behind. The good news is the series is finished and we have another guest with a fascinating story for you today. Beatrice Carroll, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so glad to be here. I met Beatrice through a mutual friend who knew I was researching and writing about religious cults. Because Beatrice is a therapist, my friend thought she might have insights about cultic groups and how they control people. And she does have those insights. I'm grateful for her knowledge and help with a difficult subject matter. But that's not what we want to talk about today. During our conversation, I discovered Beatrice has quite a history. Steve will begin by reading her bio, and then we'll ask her some questions. Beatrice Carroll was born and raised on Long Island, New York. She's the daughter of a Scottish immigrant and a third-generation American. As a child, she enjoyed music and developed a love of animals. At age 17, she enlisted in the United States Marine Corps and served during the Vietnam War. She pioneered advancements in both communication and women's empowerment as the first female radio operator in the Corps. After the Marine Corps, her life spiraled down into the disease of addiction, leaving her lost, alone, and homeless, living on the streets in Los Angeles, California. On May 12, 1982, she had a spiritual experience and her life was forever changed. She moved to the Pacific Northwest and believes she lives in a little piece of heaven called Idaho. Beatrice received her undergraduate degree in social work from Boise State University and earned a master's degree from Walla Walla University in Washington. She is currently working in private practice as a psychotherapist specializing in women's issues and addictions. She has spent the last 30 years mentoring women in their struggle to be free from the bondage of addiction. It has been her dream to create a safe, beautiful place for women to heal and realize their amazing worth. Beatrice wants her life to be an example and tribute to the love and grace of God. I have to ask you right off, with a bio like that, I mean, you're 17, you love animals, you love music, and you join the Marines? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I'm still trying to answer that question, Steve. <laughs> Well, I think at this at that time of my life, I was confused, afraid, lost. I mean, there are just so many words to describe. My father was dying from alcoholism. My mother was joining him. 
I didn't have money for college or the grades to uh, get in on a scholarship. And one fine day, I was walking down the street, and here was this beautiful man, these beautiful cold blue eyes and a smoky pair hat, a Marine Corps uniform, and he said he was looking for a few good men. And I said, so am I. So I signed up. I mean, it's just as simple as that. I was trying to find a way out of my situation. And I'd have to go way back a few years to about age 12 to tell you what the situation was. And, you know, this is a grown-up conversation, so be ready. You know, like he said, my my dad was uh, an immigrant. He came here from Scotland. He was 20 years older than my mom, and he had a third-grade education. And with that third-grade education came a locker room mentality, and he believed that if anybody touched me, it was because I asked for it. I must have had lipstick on, I must have had a short skirt, or invited this problem onto myself. And he always told me that if anybody did that to me, I mean, it was going to be my fault, but he would kill them. And he had a revolver, and he showed it to me, and I believed him. My dad was very strict, wasn't uh, really allowed to go to bowling alleys with my friends because he thought bowling alleys were like pool halls and only hussies went to places like that. So the only place I was really allowed to go, uh, unescorted and as many times as I wanted, was to church. And so I was involved in um, the choir from the time I could sing, and they would take me to Sunday school, to Walther League. We had Girl Scouts there, uh, just at church many, many days of the week, nights of the week, and Sundays for two, three services that we sang at. And when I got to be about 12, then it was time to study for my confirmation. And they were in the minister's office, It was just a few of us, and he was the one who drove me home. And he started molesting me when I was 12 years old. Now, just imagine, I mean, and I, you know, when I look back on it and I think about addiction and what creates it, I mean, it's trauma and it's low self-worth. It's a whole combination of things and, and what the person makes up about themselves while these things are happening. And my mom, who was 20 years younger than my dad, she had three babies after me. I don't remember, I only remember the last one, but she had three of them and they all died. The one right after me came home and was home for about a month but had dysentery and um, the doctor never came to the house. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened, but he told my mom to change the formula. Anyway, the baby died. And you could just imagine my mother's depression, having a baby at home and dying. And me as a little girl, anticipating the birth of my sister, putting my hands on my mom's belly, and just being so excited about having a brother or a sister, and then it comes home and it dies. 
And then my mother got pregnant again. And on a snowy winter morning, she was taking the trash can out, slipped on the ice, and at seven months pregnant, the baby died. And then my mother got pregnant again, and this time they said she had to stay in bed for six months of the pregnancy. Couldn't, could only get up to go to the bathroom. So dad bought a Castro convertible sofa and put it in the living room. And we grew up in a Jewish neighborhood and all of these Jewish ladies would come running over every day and they'd bring food and they'd do our laundry and help my, you know, my dad make his lunch and take care of me, get me off to school. And my dad woke me up one night and said, oh, Beatrice, you have a beautiful baby sister. Her name is Adelaide and she's just beautiful and perfect and mom's okay. And I went back to sleep and then he woke me up again and he said the baby died. And he was crying. I never saw my father cry before, ever. The strongest man in the world <laughs> was crying and I was just terrified. But what the little girl made up, I'm talking about me, was why can't I have, why do these baby, babies die? It was like, was I not good enough to have siblings? Why, why did they die? Why did they not want to be with me? And of course, the depression of my mother was very deep. And I remember her laying on the couch a lot, staring out the window. Sometimes if she had her eyes closed, she'd tell me she was resting them and I'd raise her eyelid and I'd say, Mom, Mom, are you there? I know that she loved me so much. And then I was her world. I was her only surviving child, but the sadness was just overwhelming. And, you know, I'm 74 years old, so back then, I mean, it wasn't let's run to the therapist or let's take some antidepressants or let's have a, have a grief group, you know. My mom had no resources. My father was a practicing alcoholic when he married my mother. He was already having liver issues. She didn't know it, but he was one of those kind of alcoholics that went to work every day, he never got a DUI, he never raised his voice. The only time you, you knew he had a problem is if he didn't have any alcohol. <laughs> then he would get sick. So I knew when I was 12 years old, and this started to happen to me, that if I told my dad, what was happening to me, it, he would blame me, and he would kill the minister. I knew he would. And my poor mother would have no one to take care of her. So I never said a word. I never said a word. I went through my confirmation classes, and you know, that takes quite, I can't remember how long it took, but I can still remember the day kneeling at the altar, and this man who was using those hands to put that wafer in my mouth and tell me how much God loved me was hurting me. And I made some decisions, you know. I started making decisions about myself as, as a woman, that that was my worth, that was all that was of value. I made decisions about God, that God really wasn't there for me, and that it was all a bunch of crap. 
that God would allow, or Jesus, my Jesus, who I loved, would allow that to happen to me in his house. And this is really the crux of it. Because my body responded to this man's touch, I believe that I was intrinsically bad. It, years later, in my master's level classes, you know, when we're studying sexuality and all of that, I'm learning that bodies don't know the difference between good touch and bad touch. But I didn't know that as a 12 or 13 year old girl. I just thought that I responded to him, so I was bad. I threw a hate on myself, and I think I was on a suicide on the installment plan after that. I started smoking, started acting out, and when I joined the Marine Corps, I mean, I did not have, what do you call it, the core of self-worth and self-esteem that I really needed to to be in that environment. I was the only female, the only one. I mean, not in boot camp. Boot camp was another story. But when I got to MCRD and was in um, communication school, I was the only woman. And there were a lot of men there that didn't want me there. It made my life miserable. Carrying the butt can in and out, that was my job. The dang thing must have weighed 20 or 25 pounds. It was full of sand. I had to run every, every morning. I had to run at least five to eight miles. Oh, I could just go on and on. And from the moment that I got there, the moment that I arrived at MCRD, the flowers started coming. The phone calls started coming. I mean. All of these men wanting to date me, wanting to um, take me out. I mean, I didn't know. I hadn't even been on a date, ever. So I started drinking. I wasn't even old enough to drink. But we'd go to uh, Tijuana. Crazy things would happen in Tijuana. But the long and the short of it is that I developed this sense of, I don't know if it was wanting to punish myself for being bad, I don't know, but I know one thing. I didn't want anything to do with God, the Word, none of it, because I felt betrayed and abandoned. So I married the first guy that asked me because I just felt like I needed to be saved. I didn't know how to take care of myself with all of these guys chasing me. I mean, so I married the, the pitcher on the Marine Corps baseball team. And we got in trouble for that because we didn't ask for permission. We weren't allowed to live together for a while. But then I got pregnant with my son and I had to get out of the Marine Corps. I had um, a top secret clearance. I worked for the general. It was a good way for me, but I just couldn't handle myself. I just couldn't handle myself and it was best that I got, got out of there. So we moved to Las Vegas, that's where his family was from, and I went to work for the Atomic Energy Commission and was working at Area 51 when I was 19 years old. Just would go there, I mean, I was at the test site, we'd go to these different areas, we were in the preventive maintenance department. 
going around making sure that air conditioners and everything had a tag on it and then we were taking care of it. I worked there until I was 21 and then I got involved in the gaming industry and that was the beginning of the end for me. I mean, I was drinking every day, morning to night. I would have to leave a can of beer on my nightstand with the, with the pop top open because I'd be shaking too bad in the middle of the night to get the top off. Sometimes I would bleed from all ends, throw up blood until trying to keep the strength down. And I was dealing 21, and sooner or later, and on my breaks, I'm running to the bar next door to drink, and sooner or later, I said, you know, Beatrice, we just got to let you go. I mean, you're drinking on the job. But I couldn't, I couldn't not drink. So I went to a doctor one day and I told him, look, doc, I drink so much and I'm getting in so much trouble. And I just, and he, oh, well, let's, we'll take care of that. And he took out his prescription pad and, and he wrote me a bunch of prescriptions. And now I had solid alcohol. It was easier to hide, didn't smell. But he forgot to tell me not to wash it down with alcohol. And now I'm waking up in strange places with strange people. I'm waking up on the freeway in the Meridian, you know, on the Meridian after a car crash or um, just falling down and getting concussions and going to the emergency room and getting my stomach pumped. And uh, oh, it was just one thing after the other. And I have a little boy. I have a little boy who I send to Christian school and, you know, I don't know it, but I'm like the laughing stock of the school. I mean, I don't know how many times I showed up at the football games drunk or under the influence of something or showed up at school to pick him up. And anyway, he was incredibly embarrassed. And sometimes I would forget about him at the football games. Forget to pick him up. So, of course, marriages don't last when women, you know, go out for a pizza and come home two weeks later without the pizza. I mean, that just doesn't work. They started coming for the repossessing the car, repossessing the furniture. The husband that I last divorced, he said, I think you ought to let me take care of Scotty. You're not taking care of him. So he took him. And I just went further and further downhill until I was living in the street in Los Angeles. I remember laying in the doorway of the public library in Los Angeles and I had cardboard underneath me and a plastic bag over the top of me had a couple of butts that I pulled out of an ashtray by an elevator someplace. They were usually nice and big because people were getting on the elevator. I had a little bit of wine. And I looked across the street and there was a black man laying there and he had defecated all over himself. And I thought, you know, when I get as bad as that, I think I'll do something about myself. Huh, the craziness of that. 
Well, one fine day, a police officer came, and uh, he was herding us all, getting us away from the, the shops. He put me in his car, and that was unusual. I kept myself pretty dirty and stinky. I didn't want anybody near me. And he said, I'm going to take you to the inebriate center instead of taking you to jail for vagrancy or whatever it was. I'm just going to take you to this place, and, you know, you can be there for a few hours till you get squared away, and then... Anyway, just do what they tell you, you know. And I thought, wow, this this guy's really nice. He's usually not very nice. <laughs> He's like an angel. And he took me to 1111 Island Street. And now I'm in San Diego. And I don't even know how I got to San Diego. But I'm not in L.A. anymore. I'm in San Diego. They told me I could stay there six hours, and I got this mat. It was a big stack of mats in the corner, and I got one, laid it on the floor, and all these were all laying on the floor, detoxing or whatever we're doing. And after six hours, they asked me if I wanted to go in the three-day program, and I was so tired. I weighed about 90 pounds. I was kind of a green kind of color, and uh, sick, sorry, sad, oh, was, you know, just miserable. And they said, well, if you stay for three days, uh, you know, you can eat out of the crock pot that the volunteers bring in and you can roll some cigarettes and uh, you just have to go to those AA meetings. Oh, geez, I hate AA meetings. Well, why do you hate them? Because they talk about God. That's why. I don't want it. But I thought, ah, I could put up with it. So I signed up for the three-day program and now I'm in horrible horrible detox I mean I'm starting to hallucinate I could hear Aerosmith coming out of the air conditioning units and I could hear my father calling me and if I laying in bed the bed was going up and down and sideways and I kept looking under the bed because I thought somebody was under there I thought oh this is like what is going on and they just I had to get up I had to go in there and get some food out of the crock pot and roll a couple cigarettes and then go back out and sit on the bench out in the front and then come back in and then a meeting time and here comes this guy and his name is Earl and he starts talking about living the life that I'm living out on the street that he did that for years he lived in Balboa Park that he had murdered somebody when he was drunk and he went to prison for 20 years. I mean, just this horribleness, you know? And then he was talking about his life sober and that he had a painting company and a wife and a child and a home. And, and so when it was over, you know, I said to him, hey, how did, how did you do that? How did you stop? And he said, well, I turned my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God and I could feel the doors and shutters just slamming in my mind. <sighs> and I said, you know what, it may be good for you, but I don't do business with God and God doesn't do business with women like me. And he said, really? I said, yep. He said, well, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And I thought, well, if I can roll a couple more cigarettes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just name it. And he said, I just want you to close your eyes and picture your perfect parent. And I thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. 
but I'm going to just do it. And I closed my eyes, and boom, Jesus was there. He was there. And I love telling this part because it's, I can feel it. It's just as if it's happening right now. And I started screaming, what are you doing here? Where the hell were you when I needed you? And he didn't say anything. He just picked me up and put me around his neck like a lamb. Put me around his neck. And this download of information just started pouring into my mind and my heart. And it was information about me and who I really was, not who I made up about who I was. And the feelings, I wish I could explain to you what it felt like. It was like all joy and all bliss and all, it was like heaven just came down to me and wrapped its arms around me. I haven't had a fix, a pill, a line, a snort, a drink since that day. May the 12th, 1982. And I'm laying on the floor and I must have been screaming and hollering and, and flopping around and they thought I had the DTs, they called the ambulance. But I was having my moment with Jesus. And we've had many moments since then. Many moments. So I wish I could tell you that it was easy for me after that. It was like being, you know, little wand tapped on my forehead. And ever since then, it's been lovely because it hasn't. It was time for me to do my part. And that was to engage in the program and work the steps. And when I say the program, I'm talking about 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, it's all about God. I mean, that's where it's at and that's not where I wanted to be. And even with this beautiful experience that, you know, I was blessed with, you know, it's kind of like the Israelites when they were out there schlepping around for you know 20 or 40 years i think it was you know they they had food falling from heaven and water coming out of rocks and i mean you know what more could you ask for and and they still doubted and they still are not with me i still wanted to use i still i had my moments i didn't because i picked up the tools and i learned to ask for help I learned to pick up the phone and tell somebody how I was feeling. Come and get me. Can I get a ride with you? Will you come and sit with me? And I started doing my work, the part that I was responsible for, the 12 steps. 
And, you know, step three, I have my book, and step three took me the longest because it's turned your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand God. And I just couldn't turn my will and my life over to someone or something that I thought was vengeful and angry and, you know, a lot of the things that I had learned as a kid. So step two was came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. So I had to do a research project on step two. I had to figure out who my God really was and what it could do for me, what I would let it do for me. And that was the best research project I've ever done. I mean, my idea, my concept of God is so huge now. It was so tiny before when I threw the baby out with the bathwater. Of course, Jesus is my foundation. He's the one who came for me. He's my partner in my work. But there's so much more than that. And my license plate says step three on it because that was the biggest step I, I ever took in my entire life. And since I did, my life has just blossomed. My beautiful boy, he became an addict, <sighs> suffered. He's 53, I mean, he's been to prison. He's just, he was an IV meth user for over 30 years and stands today with almost six years clean. My granddaughter, she's 30. She had her own road and she's got almost two years clean working the program. All of us coming back to to loving God and understanding who God really is to us. I'm an incredibly grateful person. I have a life today that I never dreamed possible. I got to dance for 30 years as a competitive ballroom dancer. I got to be Miss Senior Oregon in 2008. I got to stand on the Harris stage and sing. to get a college degree and a master's degree so that I can help women who felt the same way about themselves that I felt about myself. We have to experience who we are not in order to really get who we are forgiven. And for most addicts, I mean, that was the big deal with me. I was so afraid that God wasn't going to forgive me for being bad, that I wasn't worth it. And I think that's my calling now, is to let people know that they are forgiven. It's hard for them to believe. I'm really grateful to be able to share with you today because I don't know if there's one person out there that's feeling lost and alone and scared. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to turn within and ask for help there too because that ember burns. Nobody can ever snuff it out. Not anything that you could ever do or anything that you could ever say can snuff out who you really are. It's just waiting there to be discovered, uncovered, recovered. But they say that a mind can't heal itself with the same mind that created the problem. We need each other. We need to love one another. We need to encourage one another. Once again, I'm going to say thank you to my higher power, which I call Jesus, for coming to get me. I didn't even ask for it. He just came and got me. 
and I will be forever grateful for that day. Thanks, Beatrice. What a what an incredible story. You have really been through it and have come out the other side very well. All right, here's a question for you. Were you the only woman in the school and did you fight with the guys? I should say, did you fight with the guys in battle? (laughs) Well, yes, I was the only woman in the school. Uh, When I signed up to join the Marines, it was under the buddy system and there was another gal that was supposed to go with me, but her mother passed away and um, so I went alone. And I was the only woman in the school, and that was incredibly difficult. And at that time, we did not go to battle. So I did not fight in battle. I didn't fight with the guys. I just had to fight them off, would be. And like I was saying, I didn't have the communication skills or the wherewithal to protect myself from them, really. So uh, boot camp was an incredible experience. It was very, very difficult. Um, Some of the experiences I had there was uh, if you were taken prisoner. Now, these are the things that didn't make sense for me. They trained me to be a radio operator, but they weren't going to send me anywhere to radio operate. Then they were training me to, if I was captured and thrown into water, I had to be able to survive. So uh, they took us to um, a big pool, swimming pool, and they taught us how to survive in eight feet of water, nine feet, however the deep end is, while tied up, hands and feet tied up, full gear on, boots and everything, and uh, thrown in the deep end of the pool, and we had to stay there for a significant amount of time. I seem to remember an hour, but... That may not be accurate. I don't know. But I know that I recited in my mind every single thing I had ever memorized from the time I was a zygote to keep from panicking. And they had these long poles with um, nooses on the end, and if you started to panic, they'd hook your head and pull you to the shallow end where you could stand up. Another time, um, the gas chamber was another thing. Being in there with the gas, tear gas, whatever else they had in there, and we had to take the mask off and breathe the gas and then run out and sing the Marine Corps hymn, of course, and then get sick. I think the one that that really I had the hardest time was was being in a muddy field. It was just very, very muddy and swampy-like, and it had bob wire about one foot above this mud, and we had to get down and crawl under this barbed wire across the field. And while we were doing that, these airplanes came over, and so help me, they felt like I could reach up and touch them, and that's how low they were. And the bombs, they dropped bombs and shot fire and explosions. And I mean, still to this day, I mean, we're talking 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago. 
And I still remember to this day the smell and the sounds and the terror of it. And it was just practice. It wasn't even, it wasn't even real. I mean, there wasn't even a chance that anything was going to happen to me. And I think about our soldiers over there, over anywhere, wherever they are, having to experience that every day. But they know that it's not a game that it's not practice. And another hard part for me was when I was at MCRD in San Diego, they would ask me to wear my dress blues and go to Balboa Hospital and hand out playing cards and greeting cards to soldiers that didn't have any arms or couldn't see or body parts blown off their faces all disfigured. Oh, it's just so sad. So incredibly sad because these were my buddies that I waved goodbye to and they came back in a basket. Not much left of them. If their body was intact, their mind sure wasn't. And to be spit on at the airport. I have one other story that I remember that affected me. We were all in a chow hall and we were eating and we had got the call to fall out. We run outside and we line up and here comes this truck with a little camper shell on the back. And they open the door, and one of our guys, they pull him out. He's got handcuffs on. And they had found marijuana in his locker. And he stood there, and they pulled off the buttons on his uniform. They ripped the chevrons off of his sleeves. And they made us about face and turn our back on this person who humiliated the Marine Corps and they took him away. He had a joint in his locker. Those are my memories. I learned a lot of good things in the Marine Corps, but some of the memories are very painful. So... That was the battle that I fought. Thank you. Wow, that's, uh, you put a lot into that. Yeah. Thank you. What did your dad think about you going into the Marines, considering he was going to shoot the guys who pursued you? Well, my dad was very proud of me for going into the Marine Corps. When I graduated from boot camp, he did call me there at Paris Island to tell me that he was proud of me. He never brought up anything about being in a sea of men. <laughs> but my dad did tell me one time, you know, in the Bible, it talks about the blessings, Jacob blessing 
his kids and that that was how it was back then. And it's that way today, you know, you bless your children or you curse them. And my dad told me that you'll never make anything of yourself. This was before I went in the Marines. He says, you'll never make anything of yourself because you're just too boy crazy. And what, you know, what I've come to know now is that all I was looking for was love. All I was looking for was acceptance and love, and I wanted it mostly from him. And he didn't give it to me. And that's my message to dads, you know, you're the, you're the first love of every little girl. And who you are speaks loudly to them. And if you don't give them what they need, they're going to seek it somewhere else. That's not going to turn out good. I wanted to be able to talk to my dad about anything. Sex, boys, you know, what it's like. I, you know, and I wanted him to be understanding and kind and validate me for just being a precocious little girl. But he wanted to make me bad about it. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but dads, you know, you're the first love. And how you are is how they see God. They actually project that onto the Creator. You have a huge responsibility there. So my dad died when my son was less than a year old, and it wasn't a good passing between him and I. I've since come to talk to him and spend time with him in my private meditations. And I've wrote many, many letters to him and many, many letters to the minister who molested me. And I will tell you, I was probably 65 or 66 when I wrote my last letter to the minister. And it was so beautiful, I couldn't believe it. I told him that I forgave him for what he did to me and that I had healed myself as a woman and healed my sexuality and that I have used that experience to help so many women. Women that think no one can understand, but they knew I did. And I told him that I, that I forgave him and I knew that God forgave him. And I knew that he was sitting in the presence of Jesus right now. And you know, it, it took a long time, <laughs> but I think I freed him. But the most important thing is I freed myself. But it takes work, and you got to ask for help, and you got to do the work. So, Beatrice, you've you've kind of said it, but I'll ask uh, for a more specific answer. So, speaking of the twelve steps. What is the first step you'd suggest to someone listening to this podcast, male or female? Uh, what first step, even before the 12-step program, uh, would somebody take in an effort to address addiction of any type? Well, first of all, you know, there's this thing called stages of change, and um, we get to a pre-contemplation stage and a contemplation stage, and I mean, if you're even thinking about that you might have an addiction problem, if you're seeing that your life is becoming unmanageable in some way, and it could be that you're getting DUIs, 
It could be that your spouse is saying, you know, you're doing too much, uh, you're drinking too much, you're using too much. I can't. Your child may be saying something to you. Maybe your body is speaking to you. Maybe your body is saying, oh, your liver enzymes are way, way high, or you have an ulcer, or you have um, some kind of issue going on with your body. Maybe it's a spiritual one. Maybe you're disconnected from the Creator in some way, or you don't want anything to do with that because you've been hurt by it and you drink too much. Maybe you see that you eat too much. Maybe you see that you shop too much, you spend money. Maybe it's um, sex. Maybe you're, you know, having promiscuous sex or too much sex or, you know, you're addicted to pornography. I mean, whatever. But if you get a little nudge that says, this isn't good and I'm on the way down, go see somebody, make an appointment. Make sure that there are certified addictions counselor so that they can know what, you know, the proper steps for you. But they can give you an assessment and then you can just see. But it's really up to you. There's help for you out there. There's tons of help for you out there. But you have to admit that you have a problem. Nothing gets fixed until you recognize that it needs fixing. And it's not a moral problem. It's not. You just gotta get down in there and figure out, why, why am I doing this? And when you get to the bottom of it, you can heal it and God will help you. Thank you, that was really good. I'm sure people will want to not only examine their own lives, but maybe contact you. So this is a good place to ask you for your contact information. I'm on psychologytoday.com. You can um, reach me through there, and I'll get an email, and I'll get back to you. I mean, if you have any questions or concerns or you need some help, just let me know. That's B-E-A-T-R-I-C-E-C-A-R-R. O-L-L-5-6 at gmail.com This has been just so interesting. Thanks for sharing deeply. Thanks for being here. I've totally enjoyed this. Thanks again, Beatrice. It's been a delight to have you on Let Me Tell You a Story. And to our listeners, remember you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.